Listen now as Dr. Brown takes us through the seventh word and points out how marriage is not only God's way to satisfaction, but also an expression of our union with God through Christ. This is Hearing is Believing. Would you take God's word and join me in Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our series this morning from the Ten Commandments. And it's been quite a year for my family and I. We've been here seven months and we've experienced quite a bit as Mississippians now. We have seen, you know, a ice storm that took us out for two weeks. We have seen uh, a threat of tornado and so the school system shuts down. And then just the other day we experienced our first national championship here in Mississippi. Tell you. Now, I know, I know many of you have already made some connections there. I am the new pastor. There is a new national title, I understand. And I really think that those connections are probably right. Someone said if uh, Mississippi wins a football title, then we'll know something's up, right? All right. But I'm glad that you're here. How many of you went to Omaha this past week? That's what I thought, quite a bit of you, because there was not a lot of people left around here, you know. Uh, it was quite something else to see the announcers, especially on uh, ESPN talk about how Omaha was just a, a, a whole host of nothing but maroon. It's like everyone left and went up there. And one of the things that they kept saying, which was so refreshing to my soul, was to hear them talk about the community of the Mississippi State fan base. And here's what I'm learning about the Mississippi State Bulldogs. I'm learning that Mississippi State is just one big family. And Katie and I are glad to be a part of this family. But speaking of family, I wonder if you've seen the headlines lately. Have you been watching the headlines around our nation in particular? Headline after headline has focused on the family. The family is on the minds of our people. During the lockdown last year, of course, 2020, it's the year that most of us want to forget, but last year we all focused on our families. We had no choice. Fathers and mothers were forced into a scenario where we had to be with our children. I know it sounds terrible, right? But that's what we had to do. There was routines that were interrupted. School was interrupted. All of a sudden, we learned what Zoom is, and we learned what Zoom Zosted is. That's a real thing. We learned about school. We learned that uh, you can do school online. I should say we learned that we can't do school online. That's what I should say. Uh, we had practices that were interrupted, events that were canceled, meaning that meetings that were postponed, and all of those things that happened during 2020 meant that the veneer, listen carefully, the veneer of our busy lives was stripped away, revealing what was beneath it all. 2020 stretched every family unit. Some families were strengthened. Other families were shattered. There was no place to go. There was no place to hide. Whatever you had been trying to cover up by going away, you had to face. And hopefully for you, it meant a time of refreshment. Hopefully for you, it meant an opportunity to focus on what matters most. And what is it that matters most? Family matters most. Now, here's a question that I want to put before you today. We're looking today at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. It's right there in the text. It's a, it's a strong word. It's a commanding word. It's an arresting word. And it's our word that the Lord would have us 
today. But what does it mean to be a family? Our culture is desperately seeking an answer to this question. And we have an opportunity this morning here in church, and I'm so glad that you're here, here in church to consult God, to see the foundation of the family. And so we turn to God's Word this morning to consider what He says. Of all the words that He could say, He only gave us ten in these ten words. And of all that would concern us, He gives us the seventh word. Hear it this morning. You shall not commit adultery. The word of the Lord. Albert Moeller, the president of my seminary, Southern Seminary, he said in his book, We Cannot Be Silent, he traces an interesting sequence of events. He points out that the rise of contraception, listen to this, the rise of contraception came just before no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce came right before the legalization of abortion which resulted in an increased tolerance of cohabitation, sex outside of marriage, and eventually the redefinition of marriage as no longer just between a man and a woman, but now including two men and two women. And all of these discussions that are in our society, all of these discussions rotate around two realities, marriage and the family. Marriage and the family. And there is an attempt to substitute God's Word for our own. It's a deal as old as the garden, substituting what God has said for our own, thinking that we know better. And so where are we today, our current moment, where we're considering something now? Polygamy and polyamory. Polygamy and polyamory. They're being argued as within the bounds of the definition of marriage. You say, what is polygamy and polyamory? Well, polygamy is having more than one spouse. And polyamory is basically having, having an open, that is, a sexual relationship with multiple people. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the loosening of the bonds of matrimony. Now, that's a strange term that our culture really has no clue what those words mean, the bonds of matrimony. As a matter of fact, I did a little Google search in preparation for this message, the bonds of matrimony, and something that came up was some, something that had to do with the, uh, 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 the Elder Scrolls, which is a very popular video game these days. But there's apparently this thing that has to do with the bonds of matrimony. And so that term has sort of fallen out of place. But marriage that's defined in these terms the societal terms, is reduced to rubble. It's meaningless these days. And how far, just think with me today, how far we are removed from the seventh word. How much has been unraveled since the fall? And what happened at the fall? Humanity substituted God's good word for our own shameful discernment. So the question is, how did we get here? How did we get here? And let me just say this morning, as passionately as I know how, 
Don't point the finger at the abortionist. Don't point the finger at the sexually immoral. Point the finger at the adulterer. Point the finger right here and admit that you are guilty of violating the seventh word. G.K. Chesterton, the English writer, responded to a newspaper article in this way. Dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Here's what Jesus said about the seventh word in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, ladies, you can just substitute a him there for the her. All of us, if we're honest, have violated the seventh word. And then Jesus shows the severity of the seventh word. Here's what he says. Listen to this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus takes adultery pretty serious. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and gouge your eye out or cut your hand off or anything like that. You know, as well as Jesus knows, as well as you do, that that's not going to help the problem. There was a church uh, guy in church history by the name of Origen that he tried that. He literally uh, did these things. He cut something off to keep him from uh, sinning sexually. But you know what? That didn't cause, that didn't help him with his issues. Jesus is saying that to show us the severity of sexual sin, the severity of our sexual ethic. Scripture takes sexual ethics seriously. Listen, listen to what Leviticus says. Leviticus says sexual sin was punishable by death. Now, I'm not advocating when I read this that we go back to Levitical law. I'm simply pointing out how serious the Bible takes our sexual ethic. Listen to what it says. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be surely put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now then again, I'm not advocating Levitical law. What I'm simply pointing to is that we need to take our sexual ethics seriously. Listen, understanding the weight of Leviticus puts everything in perspective when we encounter the woman caught in the act of adultery. Remember, who are we pointing the finger at this morning? We're pointing the finger at how we got here. We're pointing the finger at the adulterers. And who's an adulterer? Anyone who's looked at another human being with lust in their heart. 
And understanding the weight of Leviticus puts things in perspective when we encounter the woman caught in the act of adultery. Do you remember what happened in that story in John? Jesus bent down in the dust. He wrote something, and he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, some of you who are Bible scholars or self-proclaimed theologians, you're saying, well, okay, why would you use that passage? That passage is one of the contested passages. It might not even be in the original. You shouldn't preach that passage from John. All right? How about the woman caught in the act, or what about the woman in Luke chapter 7? The woman who is described in Luke chapter 7 as a sinner, the one who faced the contempt of the Pharisees when she poured ointment from an alabaster jar, and and she wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair and, and washed his feet with her tears. What about her? How did Jesus treat her? Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Our world is filled full of violators of the seventh word. Now, you and I, and in our sacred holy huddles, we can look like the Pharisees, and we can develop our posture of, of, uh, of anxiety and look with contempt, and we can, we can live like the Pharisees and see those who need more forgiveness than we do. But you know what? Jesus cuts through all of that, and He says, for any adulterer at heart, for all the sexually immoral, there's forgiveness. There's a better way to think. There's something to believe in. There's a better way to hope and love. And Jesus says, I am that better way. Lay it down and come after me. You say, how do we follow him? Well, go back to the hinge point of the Ten Commandments. Go back to the place that heaven touches earth. Go back to the fifth word. Look at it here in uh, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. The family, beloved, the family is the place that we fill the weight of the Ten Commandments as well as the place that we get to live the Ten Commandments out. The family is the place where we get to feel the full weight of the Ten Commandments, as well as the first place that we get to live out the Ten Words of God. One of my children just the other day uh, said what many children say when, when they're angry, and maybe this is just my children, maybe your children don't do this, but they said to one of their other siblings, they said, I hate you. Has anyone ever had their children say that to another child? Anyone? No? It's just my kids? Okay, I, I get it. I get it. They're preacher's kids, you know. I get it. But they said that. They said, I hate you. And Katie, my wife, she responded so sharply, it was perfect. She said, you're a murderer. And to which one of my children, I'm not telling you which one it was, I want to protect the guilty. One of my children, she, uh, excuse me, one of my children, they said, 
I knew it was going to happen. I tried so hard. I knew it was going to happen. But anyway, one of my children, after my wife said that, said, why do you always point us back to the Bible? And Katie responded, and it was absolutely perfect. It was epic. She said, I point you back to the Bible because that's who I am. What a great response about parenting. Beyond parenting, what a great response about reality. Why do we keep pointing back to the commandments? Why won't preachers just be quiet about things like this? Because this is a list, and in this list is a taste of a reality that is coming, a reality where God is worshiped, where the thief doesn't steal, where there's no threat of murder, adultery, lies, harmony, and rest is all that we'll know because that's all that there will be. That's why we can't get beyond the Bible, because we believe that this is not just black words on white paper. We believe that this is the true story of the whole world. We believe that every man, woman, boy, and girl, American, non-American, one day everyone's going to be held accountable to this. That's what we believe. And if we're consistent with our belief, we can't simply just dismiss it and put it away. Because this is God's Word. This, isn't this how the Ten Commandments start? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying. In other words, this is not something that we drum up in and on our inclinations or in and on our desires. This is something that we have received from above. We receive it. Some don't receive it very well. Some hide it under a bushel. Some want to dismiss it. Some want to hide it away. But it's the Word of the Lord. And it so far has outlasted anyone who's tried to bury it. Someone used to say the Word of God always rises to outlive its pallbearers. And it always does. Many times people have tried to disregard the Word. But the Word of the Lord stands forever. It doesn't matter how our culture appropriates the Word. What matters is how obedient we are and submissive to the Word, how fully we understand the Word in light of Jesus, in light of the cross. And here we have this list as the hinge point of this list, the ten words of God, the hinge point that holds it all together is the family. The family is the playground where the Ten Commandments are learned and they're lived out. The family, your family, is a microcosm or a miniature version of the larger society. Healthy families lead to healthy societies. And I don't have to convince you of that. Just look at the programs in our federal government. This is why the federal government has, as well as the state government, has programs such as the Department of Child and Family Services, because they believe this. Healthy families mean healthy societies. And so we need to say this 
with compassion and conviction and without apology. Our society will only be as strong as our families. And the secret to strengthening families is right here in God's Word. What's it say? Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. And I understand, beloved. I, I get it. I, I know. I understand the, that this word is, is a tough word for our society. And the reason that it's such a tough word for our society is because our society is holding up, listen, is holding up the paper mache of autonomy. Holding up, listen, the paper mache of autonomy. Sexuality is, is fluid. It's like a wax nose. You can shift it and you can shape it any way that you like. But I agree with Robert Jensen who said, no society can endure shapelessness. No society can endure shapelessness. Shapelessness. It's at the heart of our current sexual revolution, and we are in a sexual revolution. Did you know that there are 64 available genders for you to identify as? And that list is growing. And according to Teen Talk, there is male, female, transgender, gender-neutral, non-binary gender, pan-gender, gender-queer, two-spirit, third-gender, and all or none or a combination of these. And I don't say that to be cute. I say that as one whose heart breaks. Look how far we are from God's Word. And this type of language is, is proof positive how far we have come from the fifth and the seventh word. We have traded the image of God for a broken and shattered image. And we heartily encourage, as Romans 1 says, heartily encourage others to pick up the bro broken pieces themselves. I broke them here on once. And I remember my mama telling me, don't pick up that mirror because if you do, you're going to cut your fingers. I didn't listen to her. I picked up the pieces anyway, and guess what happened? I ended up cutting my hands. Please hear their compassion. Our world is filled with people who are broken. They are beautifully made in God's image but are broken. And they have been told to try to put it all together. But Jesus said the only way for you to be whole is to come to Him. The only way for you to be whole is to come to Him. Don't come to Him and try to clean up everything. Come to Him just as you are, as we used to sing at the old crusades, just as you are, without one plea.
Come to the one who has been broken. Himself, who understands what it means to be torn apart, shattered by sin. Come to this one who has turned weak and ruined, sick and sore, into perfection through redemption and ultimately through resurrection. Again, again, we live in a society filled with those who have violated the seventh word. And above all of these versions of reality, we meet the seventh word. And we're reminded that sex and marriage are theological realities. Sex and marriage are theological realities. Write these two points down. Number one, number one, marriage is God's way to satisfaction. Marriage is God's way to satisfaction. The Bible speaks against all forms of immorality. Be clear on that. Don't pick your hobby horse and go to town. The Bible speaks against all forms of immorality. Immorality is any sexual expression outside the bonds of matrimony. Immorality is any sexual expression outside the bonds of matrimony. Now, some of you have already tuned off because you say bonds of matrimony. When we use words like uh, bonds of matrimony or we talk about the confines of marriage or we, in our autonomous minds, we interpret that in, in our independent selves and we talk about the bonds of matrimony, we hear jokes about our ball and chain that we have to bring along. But, but here's what I want to convince you of this morning. Some confines, some bonds are for your good. If they're bonds of matrimony, then the question is, is that what are the bonds holding together? Society is held together by the bonds of matrimony. If you shatter those bonds, then society falls apart. Most of us were aware of the news still troubling of the, of the condo in South Florida that collapsed, and as of yesterday, there were reported over 24 dead and 121 missing. One such story was the seven-year-old daughter of a fireman who wouldn't leave the rubble until he found his little girl, and he found the body of his seven-year-old little girl. And the structure was in need of attention, we're told in the headlines, due to the wet salty and storm-prone climate. And the reports are still preliminary, but they're, they're showing inspectors that raise the alarm. But for still some reason under the investigation, all of the warning signs were ignored and the building horrifically collapsed while many of its residents were still inside. And preliminary reports suggest that corrosion was the cause. Some bonds are good. Some bonds are beneficial. And we are witnessing the 
corrosion of the building blocks of our society, marriage and the family. And the call today is to listen to the Word of God. And here's the Word of God. You shall not commit adultery. You see, there's a real warning, a real danger that God is warning us about. It's a warning that if we don't heed it, then we'll lead to corruption, we'll lead to collapse, and we'll lead to loss. Adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, polyamory, sex outside of marriage, pornography, and a host of all other things that we could talk about today. They are corrosive materials on the foundation that builds a healthy society. And what is the foundation that builds a healthy society? Marriage and family. These are immoral. And immorality is the word that the Bible uses for all of these corrosive agents of thought. They are immoral because of what is moral. Marriage is moral. Immorality leads to ruin. Morality leads to flourishing. As the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is the confessional document of this church, says, God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. But then that leads us to another question. The other question is, who is it that gets to define morality? Who gets to define morality? Not some court, not some group, not some preacher. Who defines reality? The one who created reality is the one who gets to define reality, and I simply bring His Word to you. And He says, you shall not commit adultery. Beloved, immorality is vicious. Immorality, you know why it's vicious? Because it turns people into commodities to be consumed. Immorality turns people into commodities to be consumed. Instead of sharing life together, instead of mutual respect, immorality fused with our autonomy, fused with our desire to be the center of the universe, means that we use people for our own ends. We use people for our own baseless purposes. We never consider the other person. And pornography is right at the top of the list because you just look at a screen, pixels. You turn that individual into something to be consumed. And adultery does the same. And any type of immorality, any type of sexual ethic that is outside the bounds of what God has put in place turns individuals into commodities to be consumed. But marriage is different, at least the way God intends it. Marriage It is is designed by God. This is so amazing. Listen to this truth. It's designed by God to snuff out the independence of our own hearts. In marriage, we're taught. In marriage, we learn to consider others more significant than ourselves. 
in marriage, we learn sacrificial love. The second thing that I want you to write down this morning is simply this. Marriage is an expression of our union with God through Christ. Marriage is an expression of our union with God through Christ. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're saying, well, you've just left me out of this entire message. Thank you very much. I'm single and I'm not married. What about me? Well, singleness, listen, I want to encourage you. Singleness is always called a gift in Scripture. So, this is a message for you to remember and not be an adulterer, to not prostitute yourself when God has given you the awareness of His presence through singleness. So, what does God intend through marriage? Here's what I want to do. As we've done in Exodus, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Let's go all the way back. What does God intend through marriage? Let's go back and read Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to the beginning. And I want to make two connections. Look at what it says here, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field but for Adam. It was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And don't miss this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So intimacy is now expressed in this way. This is at last. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's like Etta James is there saying, at last. Adam says it. But before Anna James said it, Adam said it. At last, when he saw Eve, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then we have this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Here's a question. I just want to ask this question. Who is God talking to in this passage? Adam doesn't have a father. Adam's father is God. 
And here's what I want to ask you, Christian, reading the Bible. Do we know of another son who left his father to cleave to his bride? As Wesley taught us, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Marriage is a picture of our union with God through Christ, and when we enter into marriage, we dare not enter lightly. Your marriage has the responsibility under God to serve as lamps of the true light. You see, adultery doesn't fit. Misguided sexual ethics don't fit. You say, how do we learn if they're misguided? Look at the Bible. See the direction. Immorality doesn't fit. You say, why doesn't it fit? Because of what marriage is. Because what we learn through the family. Because he who called you is faithful and true. Jesus will never be charged with adultery. Jesus will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never mislead you. Instead, He will guide you. He will be beside you, and He will whisper to you all along the way, I am the way, and I love you. The seventh word comes just when we need it the most. And how appropriate in God's sovereign plan that we would share the seventh word on this day. Here's the way, God says. The ancient path that leads to human flourishing, almost obscured because of divorce, almost obscured because of redefinition. But God cuts through all of the obstructions that we have put in the way. And He says, here's the way. Do not commit adultery. Father, we realize even as we read of our guilt before You. But, Father, it's my prayer for those who feel the weight of guilt. They feel forgiveness available and free through faith by all who believe. So, Father, in this moment where we usually call this a response, instead, Lord, may we think about this moment differently. May we feel You responding to us. 
you see us. But you just can't quit loving us. You have sent your son to be the satisfaction of our sinning, to take away the wrath of God, to be our hope. You have allowed him to be broken. You put him together so that we could look upon him and be saved. And it's my prayer, Lord, that we would feel the weight of your message in our hearts and all the burdens that we have, we simply give them to you and ask you to carry them away. Lord, we trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to follow Hearing is Believing on Facebook and rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us at hearingisbelieving.org.